0: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Paul Allen, and he is a partner at SI Partners, a global M&A advisory and growth consultancy for creative and technology businesses. He is an industry specialist in growth, leadership, and commercial behavior change. He leads SI Partners' global commercial practice spending, 50% of your time in the US working with leaders of creative businesses to build high-performance teams that deliver accelerated profitable growth, to build and ultimately realize equity value. And this is just a tour de force conversation about everything from what to look for in a good financial controller for your agency, how to manage the relationship between employees and staff costs, uh, how the best agencies fund for growth. And the pinch points for agencies from, you know, 5 to 10 people, 15 to 20 people, and 50 people plus, and how to get over them. I'm just scratching the surface. We talk about so much more. So, if you are remotely interested in increasing the profitability of your agency, then this is just essential listening. So, without me keeping you in suspense any further my conversation with Paul Allen. Paul Allen works with both the M&A and consultancy teams advising on commercial behavior change, business process improvement, and commercial and transaction modeling. He splits his time between the UK and the US, working with best-in-class creative agencies in both territories, His recent M&A work includes the sale of Hanover Communications to Avenir Global, the sale of What If to Accenture, and the sale of Happy Marketer to Dentsu Aegis Network. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Paul Allen, welcome to Agency Dealmasters.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to speaking to you for quite some time. Let's start at the beginning of your career. Um, You knew you wanted to be an accountant from a very early age, 16, most kids of that age want to be an accountant or want to be an astronaut even or a doctor or a professional sports person, but you were a little bit different. What was it about accountancy that drew you to the profession
1: um it's a, it's a difficult one to say, to answer to be honest, mm-hmm. but I think it was it was more in terms of um, thinking about ways to solve business problems and I think uh, what accountancy gives you is kind of real insight into uh, into business issues um, and the, the the commercial way that they operate and how you overcome some of those problems and, and grow the business. Hmm. Uh, for me, it's about using uh, maths and numbers uh, and logic to solve to solve problems within businesses.
0: And you knew that from an early age, 16. You didn't want to fly a jet pilot plane or uh, play for your favourite boyhood football team or rugby team.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean those those all sound like great careers. Yeah. Sadly, um I'm I'm colorblind, so that took the the pilot option away and right. sadly my uh my my football skills aren't quite good enough <laughs> to make a career out of.
0: Sure, makes <laughs> makes sense. Well, you got your first taste of the media and marketing landscape when you worked for a packaging design agency who I think had Britvic as a client at the time. Um, that's right that was when they were doing those really unforgettable tango adverts in the in the 90s where you had those those people with their orange gloves sort of slapping people across across the face that must have made quite an impression on you as a as a as a young man
1: yeah no it was great I I went from working in the city where it's a very kind of um, cutthroat culture um, to working uh, as you say in in the design agency where there's instantly there was a, a kind of a spirit and a culture of collaboration um, on although I was sort of pushing numbers around a page uh, I felt part of the the team the creative and I really uh, it kind of the, the energy that you get working within a creative business mm. really resonates with me and uh, it's something that I, I still enjoy and pick up on when I walk into my clients offices today huh. quite quite fascinating.
0: You've been an FD for various creative businesses over the years. Talk about some of those roles. And in your opinion, what makes a good financial controller for an agency?
1: Sure. I mean, I've worked in, in businesses of various different sizes. Um, so after the design business, I worked in a, a 10-person specialist media buying agency, um, which uh, which was fantastic and gave me a whole, uh, a very rounded set of skills uh, and experiences because you're you're not just running a department or running a team you are involved in commercial negotiations all the way through from the lease for the water cooler all Hmm. the way for the for the office and and client contracts so that gives you a whole whole range of uh, new skills uh, to pick up on and then uh, after that I worked at uh, Jackie Cooper Hmm. uh a consumer PR agency which was part of the Edelman network sure uh, which is obviously thousands of people around the world so very very different uh but again it's it's that kind of breadth of experience I was then exposed to corporate reporting uh, you know monthly and quarterly reporting deadlines with predetermined uh information requests where you have to submit information up to the global controllers and then they come back. You, you, there was a lot more rigor there in terms of annual budgeting hmm. and all of the kind of the corporate governance side that goes with it. So again, completely different but, but a very uh, a wide a wide uh, level of experience that, that I gained. So hmm. I think for me it's kind of what makes a, what makes a good controller, I find are, are the people that have kind of grown from within an agency so they started off maybe doing you know putting the purchase invoices on and then doing the billings and then moving up to a management accountant level people who really get agencies and how they work Um, and probably the most important thing in this sector is someone who's got the ability to talk about the numbers and the commercial challenges within the business but do it in a way where creative people can understand it and and, and help make the changes that you need to make. Uh, there's no point sending a, a, a rigid corporate accountant into an agency and have mm. them talking to the creative director mm-hmm. uh, about the performance of the business because, you know, they, they, they will just glaze over most of the time right. on pages of numbers and tables and, and all of that kind of thing. So mm. it's, it's how do you pick out the, the important points from the financial information and communicate them in a way that creative people can, can get
0: huh that could be interpreted as creative people don't have a firm grasp on their business or the commerciality of their
1: business no i think well no it's not that i think it's it's more of a language thing mm. so um you know creative people and it's a huge generalization but they tend to be more visual so they they like shapes they like graphs sure. and charts to be able to interpret things uh, whereas uh, some people can get a lot of joy from sitting there and pouring through a a table or a balance sheet and, sure. and analyzing out every single number. Now, everyone's different, but I think you, you need a good financial controller. For me, is someone who can change their communication styles to fit with the audience that they're talking to, whether that's maybe a planner who's incredibly analytical mm-hmm. uh, versus a creative who tends to be more uh, more visual,
0: sure makes makes a lot of sense. You say that the best performing agencies are the ones who manage the relationship between revenue and staff costs. Explain.
1: Yeah, so so I think that the the biggest problem that that we see, uh, where people are struggling to to make good margin and struggling to to make profits, are where they kind of try and overcomplicate the business, and ultimately what we're what we're talking about with agencies is time in terms of fees versus the amount you're spending on staff costs so if you can manage that relationship that's probably going to be somewhere around 60 to 65 percent of the of the cost base of the companies mm-hmm. coming through those staff costs mm-hmm. so and the rest of the the rest of the numbers then in the p&l are things like you know entertaining travel rent that kind of thing which you can which you can manage and there's there's benchmarks out there but really the best performing agencies, the ones that we see is that, that where they've got the flexibility to adjust their, their headcount, their staff costs, according to, to revenue. And that doesn't mean hiring and firing people. Mm-hmm. It means, you know, how much of your staff base do you have as freelancers? What roles could you have as uh, semi-permanent roles rather than full-time resource within the agency? Um, a lot of it comes from uh, the ability to forecast revenue, which mm-hmm. is particularly differ- difficult now, I think, for agencies, given that retainers are on the decrease, have been for years now, uh, and even if even if you do have a retainer, there's you know quite often a three month cancellation on it, so actually it's just a rolling project rather rather than a, a long term retainer. So the the agencies that get it right are the ones that have Good systems and processes in for tracking and forecasting revenue and they're then able to tie that into their staff base and see what people they'll need and when and then they can plan for those events because having too many people really is just as bad as having as having not enough sure. people
0: makes makes so, a lot of sense
1: so managing that relationship is crucial
0: Really interesting. It's a really good point. And so so related to that, then, let me ask you this. Because, you know, when an agency is struggling financially and there isn't enough revenue coming in to support the operations or the employees of the business, many of them actually don't make those tough decisions to let people go soon enough. Um, and that sort of indecision ends up hurting them even more yep. in, the, in the long run. Um, so the question is, why do we find it so difficult to make that tough decision um when we should make it
1: well i think i think there's probably a few things in play one one part is we're all humans and you know business is business but it's it's not nice laying people off and, and saying that they no longer have a job um but i think you know the the other part of it as well is um perhaps sometimes you know we're all entrepreneurs and uh we work in our own businesses or we have started businesses and sometimes you can kind of get fixated with the idea and not let it go. So I'll, I can give you an example. Uh, there was one business that, that I worked in where we tried opening an office in another geographical location, uh, one which was particularly tough to do business in for, for various reasons. And we, we kind of stayed in that uh, and, and kept persisting with setting up that office and establishing a business uh, in that country. I think it was for about 12 months, and to be honest, after six months, we should have mm. we should have looked at what we'd learned and called it, and uh, and we didn't because we th- we thought that it was the right thing to do and sure. we carried on. So I think sometimes that there's that that piece there about you know you, you keep trying something. You, all of the data is there to say that it's not a good sure. idea and it's not working, but you kind of get slightly pigheaded and trying and, yeah. trying to prove something and push water up sure. a hill. Uh, that's and it's, it
0: that's sometimes the challenge sorry. with entrepreneurs where you know we're naturally optimistic yeah. and we always the glass is always half full so we always tend to think it's going to work out even when the data is sometimes telling us um something different um but also and, and I think sorry
1: sorry I was gonna say and I, I think that kind of that entrepreneurial spirit is is that's what drives us and motivates us mm-hmm. all and for me it's the kind of you can try something but it's not a failure if it doesn't work it's just an idea that didn't work sure so go on and try another idea or change it slightly or Mm. do something else but it's it's you know don't don't feel like it's a failure if you tried to do something and it and it didn't co- didn't end up how you expected, because as an entrepreneur, that's what you're that's what you're there to do.
0: Definitely, pivot is the new term that people are using these days to describe when you need to change quite quite quickly. Um, yes, we, you can't carry people in an agency. Everyone has to carry their own weight. For employees that aren't really paying for themselves and who may be in senior positions, how have you seen the best agencies handle that type of situation?
1: Yeah, no, it is, it is a tricky one, and we're seeing it in the networks at the moment is consolidation within the groups, um, where they're saying, okay, well, we've got within our network we've got two or three PR agencies, for example, why are we why are we paying for three management teams? Let's bring some of these agencies together, mm-hmm. and it allows us then to to streamline. Uh, that, that's kind of more more at a corporate level, but I think in in independent agencies where we see people doing it best is the the decisions aren't being made right at the top of the company so the way that we like to work with clients um is to to structure the business around client teams and it's not the founders or the managing directors who are uh resourcing those teams there's responsibility given to kind of lieutenants you might call them or or you know the next tier down of leadership sure and basically, they're the people that are making, they're on the coalface of day-to-day client delivery. And and they're making the call on who stays and who goes. And quite often, it kind of, it comes down to this, um, the sort of uh, theory that you get, I don't know whether you experienced it in, in school, where, you know, you've got a class of 25 people and you're all lined up and there's the two football captains picking the team and it you, you kind of get down to the last uh, two or don't three. Don't take me and, back
0: to those, those horrible days. Yeah, no, it's a uh, most time, of the last but, one or two.
1: <laughs> but, it's, and you, but you get that in business. Mm. So <clears throat> that's the way that we kind of see people doing this successfully is that there's decisions and you actually, it comes down to those last two or three people mm. and no one really wants them on their team. <laughs> so then the message kind of plays itself out that, okay, they're, they're probably best to move on and, and try and grow their career mm. elsewhere
0: quite quite fascinating let's talk about the quarterly boom and bust cycles that agencies tend to go through you alluded to it earlier the fact that retainers aren't as plentiful as they once were and there's more and more project work which leads to less secure revenue streams Uh, and we often see agencies go through these quarterly cycles of boom and bust what are some of the most common reasons for them and how do the best agencies in your experience or how have the best agencies in your experience overcome them
1: Yeah, it's a good, I think the answer is there's no silver bullet that's going to answer any of this. But I think what we see most commonly with those cycles, and it it could be quarterly or annual or whatever it might be, it's kind of, you need to, there needs to be a constant attention given to winning new business and generating Mm -hmm. new business. So, you know, there's lots of software platforms out there now, CRM databases, uh, like Salesforce and Zoho and there's plenty more as well mm-hmm. that agencies can use to just keep tracking their uh, their new business pipeline. Because what tends to happen, and this is especially within smaller agency, agencies of around sort of 20 to 30 people, mm-hmm. you, you, they go out there, they win a project, they put all of their time and resource and energy into servicing and delivering that client and, and delivering that project and they take their eyes then off of the new business process, and they don't have the the meetings that they need to be having, and and sure. they they just switch off the tap on, sure. on time and effort. And, and then what happens is once you've delivered that project, there's the lag where everyone's scrambling around and focusing on new business. <laughs> yeah. And then you win the next piece of and new then business, and everyone time. focused. Exactly. Yeah. So so I think where we see it best, and and we have kind of uh, there's there's benchmarks and KPIs that that we can have with clients, it's kind of like you need to figure out how many new business meetings you need to be having per month, mm-hmm. because that will turn into a number of proposals that you send out, which then turns into a number of live projects. So if you if you build some KPIs around your new business process, then it helps in stopping that kind of boom and bust cycle of of having work and then having to go and win more work Hmm. you
0: you talk about three pinch points for agencies typically so five to ten people on average 15 to 20 and 50 people plus around that sort of mark from a Hmm. finance perspective talk about some of the most common challenges agencies typically face at each of those three stages
1: yeah so so from a financial point of view the kind of the the five to ten is um, you know that the, the, the agency is relatively new, and uh, they can't afford, or all the, all of the staff that they invest in need to be revenue generating and client facing, typically. Um, and then, so what you what you haven't got then is the the time or the resources to invest in relatively senior finance sure. people. So you might have someone, maybe even an outsourced bookkeeper that's just basically, you know, doing the doing the data entry. And then at the end of the month, they press a button and you have a P&L, sure. P&L and, and a balance sheet. But what you're not getting is some of that strategic uh, advice at board level. So um, I, I sit on uh, probably half a dozen boards at the moment for clients where I come in once a month and kind of ask some of the, the finance and commercial questions that they they probably know. Uh, but they're they're not being challenged on on a regular basis. So thinking about you know all the way from have you got the right insurances in place and the, and the right sort of corporate governance mm-hmm. points, all the way through, through to banking and treasury, and mm-hmm. are you making your money do the best for you? So at that lower level, that's the kind of you may have a functional finance person, but you you wouldn't have that senior counsel. Sure. Uh, when you, when you get slightly bigger, up to around sort of 20 people, that's the time when you're starting to invest in. in in finance people. So you might have recruited an internal management accountant or a finance manager. But the the financial support that you can benefit from at this stage is really understanding the commercial drivers within your business. So what do you make money on? What do you not make money on? How can you start to manage that relationship between revenue and resource um, and, and effectively become slightly more profitable or at least retain your profitability because typically as you grow as an agency, the bigger you get, actually the less profitable you are because hmm. you have to invest in infrastructure. So by the time you get to 20 people, you're probably going to have to uh, be, be thinking about a finance person, quite possibly a HR person. Sure. There probably needs to be some kind of legal, um, typically outsourced at that size, sure. but, but legal services, you have to invest in an accounting system, a project management system, you know, there's all these things that you need to do mm. when you get to that size that actually, uh, a drains is, is draining on your profits huh. and reducing your margin. Um, and then when you get to up to about 50 people, you know, to, to grow from that point, what you really need to do is to create that right internal infrastructure, which is, you know, typically for us, it's, it's grouping the business into client teams and then putting someone at the head of those team, that team, who is responsible for certainly the the revenue and the staff costs associated with those clients. Hmm. And a lot of the work that we do with agencies of that size is helping them to with that organisational design, and then training people on how to be commercial. So I remember from my agency days there was this kind of myth about, you know, oh it's a bad thing if we make profits. Well, no, it's not. Profits are there. It's not so uh, it's not so that the the people can people at the top can take huge dividends. They're there because it allows you to reinvest in growth. It allows you to reinvest in the team and pay bonuses and pay rises right. and allow promotions. Sure. You know, so so profit's not a dirty word. And and what, what you need to to have when you get to that size are grown-up people that are having day-to-day conversations with clients and they are thinking about things like scope creep and increasing prices and all of those things and and having those conversations with clients.
0: So when an agency is around the 20 to 30 people mark and they've been around for maybe three to five years they may start to think about an exit or selling their business at some point in the future. Um, Talk about sort of what that process looks like um, and what do buyers look for in agencies and in your experience, what are the main uh, value drivers of a deal that, that really are appealing to buyers?
1: Sure. So, I mean, it's, it's it's a difficult question because there's each buyer will have their own strategic priority. But I mean, I would say, first of all, build your agency and be the best at what you can be. So, Quite often we see people thinking, you know, trying to be generalists or trying to do everything for everyone, and and that doesn't really work. So I would say the first thing is on your your proposition is pick something that you're brilliant at and be brilliant at it. Mm-hmm. Then beyond that, getting ready for sale, it's kind of the the main driver of deals are capabilities. So you need to have compl- uh, you need to have um, capabilities that are rooted in uh, it used to be digital now kind of everyone assumes that everyone is digital but if you've got capabilities that are data driven you understand certainly existing technologies even better if you understand the emerging technologies and you can link those through to your core proposition that's going to be incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. in in the market today so you know people out there at the moment the buyers are looking for uh, creative agencies that understand technology platforms, so they understand the CRM databases and they kind of get that Okay over here You've got this data platform with lots of information about Potential consumers, but how do we communicate with them? How do we talk to them? What what's the best channels? What's the best messages? That's what they're looking for to, to effectively drive sales
0: hmm. When should agencies really start thinking about preparing for a sale or an exit?
1: Um, I, th- I mean, I think I would just – for me, it's a focus on build the best agency you can. Right. So be contemporary in, in, the, in your range of capabilities. Try and work with as many big blue-chip multinational companies as you can. Right. Uh, build, a, gr- build a second tier of management underneath you so that there's succession there. So don't just be the two or three founders at the top. You have to build a team. Um, you have to prove year-on-year growth. So don't have one year of spectacular growth or spectacular profits and think you can go to market. Mm-hmm. You need to show that it isn't a blip or a one-off, and you also have to show that the growth is going to be ongoing in the future. So substantiation for growth going forwards. And finally, you kind of you, there's certain minimum levels of profit uh, that buyers are looking for. Sure. So if you're making a million pounds worth of profit you're going to be a lot more interesting to a lot more people than if you're making half a million.
0: Sure, makes makes complete sense. Let's talk a little bit about SI partners. Um, The business is typically made up of 70% consultancy helping agencies grow and 30% is roughly sort of M&A and corporate finance. And we mentioned some of the deals um, at the top of the show. What makes SI partners different to other agency advisory services on the marketplace?
1: Um, I think what, what we bring is a global perspective. So um, we we kind of – we have so we have offices in uh, London, uh, which is the founding office back in 2001. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, we opened in Hong Kong. Uh, we have a team of, of people out there now. We also have a team of people in Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, in Shanghai, and also New York. So what we're able to do is to provide a, a global perspective of the M&A market. So we know the Asian buyers – we know the US buyers, we know the European buyers, and we we feed all of that into our own CRM system so that even though we are global in terms of our, our footprint and our headcount, that everyone's on the one system. So if I have a conversation with someone in New York, that gets logged in our system, and then anyone in Asia or anywhere else around the world can see what that conversation was and what that buyer might be looking for. Huh.
0: Quite fascinating. Really, really interesting. So, So what sort of agencies do you typically help most is it those agencies that are experiencing quite a lot of organic growth sort of quite early on or perhaps they they know they want to sort of exit in maybe two or three years time and they get in touch with you how at what point do you typically start engaging with an agency and of what size in their in their journey do you engage with them
1: it's a good question it's um it's it's really quite broad so um, I do the consultancy work that we do is, is generally either helping someone fix a problem. So maybe they're not as profitable as they want to be, for mm-hmm. example. Um, or it could be that we're working with someone to, to help them get ready to, to sell. Mm-hmm. Now, both of those things are probably not good to have out in the public domain. So there's lots of instances of agencies that we're working with that they won't feature on our website, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, of scale, I work with startups uh, in terms of, you know, board advisory type uh, roles all the way through to international agencies with, you know, 400, 500 people. Hmm. Um, it just depends. It depends what the question is. So if there's a good question for us, then we love to work with people. And really, the, the size or uh, the length of time that they've been going is, is pretty irrelevant. It's, you know, we want to be. We want to work with interesting people uh, who, who've got good challenges to answer and, and help them go on the journey of, of fixing those challenges.
0: You, you mentioned valuation earlier. How can agencies increase their valuation?
1: Uh, valuation typically now is still driven by most commonly a multiple of profits mm-hmm. uh, or in some instances a multiple of revenues. So really if, if people want to get more value, you need to maximize the growth of your agency and, and become as sustainably profitable as possible. So that's not that doesn't mean cutting corners and uh, not having the right infrastructure in place for growth to, to make a bit more profit. It's about how do you how do you build and grow the agency whilst at the same time making sure that you've got the right infrastructure in place? Right,
0: right. Sort of leadership team, culture, uh, sort of a history of of profit making over a number of years as you've as you've mentioned uh, and not those peaks and troughs you mentioned leadership team and, and and that being quite an important part of actually building a successful um agency what what does a what are the constituent parts of an exceptional leadership team in your opinion and and what agencies have you worked with or have you seen that have built fantastic leadership
1: teams what do they look like Um, So I think that, you know, to me, the facets of the leadership team are you need a range of people. So it doesn't even have to be, you know, I I don't like too much hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So you could have people of mixed age, mixed experience, uh, even mixed kind of level within within the business um, sitting around the table together as a leadership team. Uh, the most successful ones are where there's a culture in in those meetings and when that team comes together of transparency, openness, uh, honesty, so that you can have the real conversations. If if you're going to have a leadership team and there's you know people aren't going to speak up, people aren't going to ask the questions right. that they want to ask, then it doesn't it doesn't really work. So they're the kind of they're the businesses that are uh that that excel the most Hmm. because they have this honesty in the room and there's everyone knows what everyone else is thinking and can challenge it uh sometimes there's conflict and that's quite often a good thing (laughs) okay handled in the handled in the right way obviously but it's kind of uh you know it, it helps nut out some of the challenges
0: really really interesting and i guess are are people is it important to sort of hire for those people who because I guess the question is how do you hire for those attitudes characteristics and behaviors of the leadership team who are going to be quite vocal and outspoken if they do have an opinion they voice it because you might have a really capable um, member of the leadership team uh, technically but if they aren't able to verbalize their opinions and sort of challenge and Push back on sort of what's been brought to the table, um, there's less value in having that, that member of the, of the team. So how do agencies, and I don't know whether you've come across this, but how can, they, how can they make sure that they are recruiting or sort of onboarding the right capabilities and skills to be able to uh, sort of share their opinions quite openly without it leading to conflict?
1: And it, yeah, it's a very tough thing to do. So um, y- you need to try and design it if mm-hmm. you can. Um, there's a range of things. So quite a lot of our clients now, certainly the larger agencies have a head of talent whose their brief is exactly that. It's, it's to answer that question mm-hmm. of how can we bring in the right people, the people that are going to challenge us. Uh, and it's not an easy job. It's, it's kind of a full time job. And then Throughout the recruitment process, I think you need to to bring into it your culture and values and uh, what behaviors you would expect from them uh, and what's acceptable Mm -hmm. and not acceptable um, to try and suss all of that out. But again, you know, you can interview someone three or four times for, for an hour or two hours each time until you get into that that boardroom atmosphere that with that leadership team around you. You're you're not going to find it out. So it's another one of those things of, you know, sometimes you're going to have to take a risk on a hire uh, and see how it plays out. But, you know, that's the joy of being an entrepreneur. Hmm. And to to your point, you made a good point there about, you know, some people um, just just don't react well in the room and they just want to do their day day job. That's absolutely fine. There was there was one business that we worked with uh, where the managing director was hugely talented. um, But actually just found that that being in that leadership team with all those people was not the right environment for him and and so then that's absolutely fine so what we did was took him out of the leadership team and he was happy with that he was happy that the team amongst them would make the right decisions Mm -hmm. and and he could then just focus on doing what he loved doing which was being a practitioner
0: Hmm. well let's talk a little bit about growth because you mentioned earlier that obviously the the best approach for agencies is not necessarily to sort of cut costs if they do want to improve their profitability, it's to actually sort of win new business and to be proactive in, in doing so. But f- from a finance perspective, from all the agencies that you've worked with in the, you see in the market, what are some of the most common reasons they're unable to grow and become profitable?
1: Um, I think uh, confusion over, over who they are and what they do. So the proposition So I think you need to, you know, this sector is incredibly competitive now and there's lots of people out there saying that they're doing various different variants of what each other are doing. So, you know, to to be able to grow and win new work, you've got to be very clear on what your proposition is and why you are different Mm -hmm. and better than your peers in the sector. So having that kind of, you know, cliched USP of what makes you different, the elevator pitch, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be, it's, it's really important for growth. And it's also really important to run a new business process. So there's some people out there that think, you know, work will just come to them. It may well do. But what you also have to do is put the effort and the hours in of walking your client's corridors, trying to grow business. Um, organic growth is far easier than going out and winning new clients. So I would suggest you, you invest more time in that, uh, in that activity of, of growing the clients you've got. Okay.
0: Upselling and cross selling uh, to your existing client base.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. As opposed that.
0: to winning new, new accounts, but isn't there, isn't so from the clients that you work with and that you've seen historically, the best way that they've grown is by growing, or the quickest way that they've grown is by growing their existing accounts, not necessarily knocking on new doors and bringing in new, new revenue. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, again, once you start going into pitches against Mm. five or six different agencies, you know, the odds go down on winning the business. Mm -hmm. You've got to do a lot of the work. You then have to invest in building the relationship. So, so, you know, it's, it's a lot more efficient as much as you can to go into your existing clients and say, what other problems can we help you with? What other challenges mm. are you are you dealing with at the moment that we may be able to help you with? And try and go in and get some of that business, maybe from other brands. If you're working with one of the big uh, big corporates like a Unilever sure. or a P&G or whoever it is, then going in there and saying, well, we're working on this brand with you in this way. Could you introduce me, or how do I how do I talk to the person over there with that brand sure. about how we might be able to help them? Or going to them with an idea and saying, you know, you've got this brand over here. We thought this would be a really interesting next step. Who can we talk to about it? Hmm. Really so interesting. So that's that, that's far easier than going out and winning new clients. Yeah. Um, obviously, I think you need to do both. But the quickest growing agencies that, that we see are ones where they focus their efforts on organic growth of existing clients.
0: Right. Quite quite fascinating. Let, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier that the agency landscape is increasingly competitive um, and that there are, I guess, more entrants coming into the market uh, with increasing regularity. What's giving rise to that? Why has the landscape, why have the number of agencies increased in the last few years?
1: Um, I think at the moment there's kind of this, there seems to be quite a lot of startups here in the UK. Hmm. Um, I think agencies are. Uh, or clients seem to be consolidating their spend, so they're using less agencies. There's lots of clients, both here and in in the US that I've spoken to recently, where they're they were on the on the roster with a client, um, and then they heard from that client that they're reducing the number of agencies on their roster. That's a very common common thing that's happening at the moment, which of course makes it more competitive because uh, there's there's fewer Fewer agencies that you're up against, sure. but you're competing for the for the same uh, for the same budgets. So there is opportunity there that you could actually then increase your spend mm-hmm. because some of the money that was going to other agencies might now come to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to be very focused on the clients that you're targeting. Um, I think there's certain clients and agencies that work well together. So I try and encourage my clients to think about blueprints of you know, if you're if you have an incredibly successful relationship with client X, what makes that successful? What type of client are they? What work are you doing for them? And then who are the other clients out there in the world that are just like them?
0: That makes sense. And from a profiling perspective, uh, it seems as though that's the quickest or easy way to find uh, um, lookalike clients or or um clone your clients, really, yeah. uh, which, is, which is really interesting. I watched a recent video of you on YouTube um, where you were talking about the challenges that agencies have in growing their business. And one thing stood out to me. You said agencies typically, the agencies that you come across, aren't brave enough. What do you mean by that?
1: So I, I think this is the, um, so it's all about risk. And it's kind of back to that kind of entrepreneurial theme. Again, in terms of there's some agencies that I work with and they they say it was for, I'll give you a live example. There's there's one client that I've got who is looking to make a very senior hire mm-hmm. um, who's, who complements their existing capabilities, but isn't core to their existing capabilities. And they've been deliberating whether or not they hire this person for probably about two months now. And what it's done is potentially reduce their opportunity to grow because had they have just gone, actually we'll debate it. We'll make a decision. We'll make the hire that person could have had, you know, could have been sitting in their office and winning new business for the last six weeks. So there's this, I think that the bravery piece for me is, uh, make a decision because at the end of the day, you know, as long as you do that, you pivot, your point earlier quickly and if it's not the right decision Mm. then you change it change it Mm. um that's the that kind of that that bravery and a leap of faith sometimes is is what's missing Mm. and people think especially in times of economic uncertainty they think okay well let's just hunker down and Mm -hmm. stick with what we've got and protect what we have and then normally the agencies that end up falling away and losing Mm. it's the ones who are brave that look for the opportunities, that put their head over the parapet, they're the agencies that carry on growing, especially in in, in times of uh, recession.
0: Hmm. What's that old saying that any decision is better than indecision? Yes, uh, so it makes a very huge, valid, it makes a huge amount of sense. When when you are working with, because you mentioned, we mentioned at the, top, at the top of the show that you've worked with agencies in the US and in the UK and sort of. Um, Uh, europe what have you found to be the uh, the biggest differences between entrepreneurs in the way that they think and operate and behave in the u.s as opposed to in the uk
1: um it's a good question i think so what i tend to see in the u.s um is that people make decisions faster Mm -hmm. um certainly I spend the majority of my time in New York, which is its own kind of unique bubble anyway. Sure. But, uh, you know, business culture out there is all about getting things done. It's about deliverables. They want to, they want to see – clients want to see exactly what they're going to get. And then they want proof afterwards that that is exactly what they've got. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, uh, the other difference in culture for, for me is also um, they're quite protective in the U.S., certainly from a financial perspective. So over here we have uh, companies house, and we have lots of you know uh, surveys that look at the financial performance of marketing agencies. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a level of transparency in the UK on financial information. Certainly, that increases as as the bigger the bigger you get. Um, in the US they don't have that. So there's there's a lot of when I talk to my clients in the US about possibly even sharing revenue numbers with the wider agency and the team <laughs> it makes them incredibly nervous.
0: really interesting
1: they, there's there's this reluctance to share any financial information uh, which which you know is a shame and I think you know but I can understand why why it's there because they don't have this access to public information sure. in the way that we do in the uk
0: sure not even they, they don't see the benefit of sharing with that with their team to provide transparency trans- transparency and sort of visibility of how the business is operating
1: i mean yes yeah, some some do some are open to it mm-hmm. um but i mean it's it's never been questioned when i've either worked in agencies or uh, or worked with agencies since i've been at si hmm. In the the UK, it's kind of, yeah, of course, well, I wouldn't be share financial information, Mm -hmm. maybe not profit, but, you know, or individual people's salaries, but certainly revenue. Whereas in the US, it's kind of, there's this thought of, um, okay, well, because of the labor laws in New York, someone can leave and serve a week's notice and then go and work with a competitor down the road. So if they know that 50% of our income comes from client Y, then... They could go and tell that shop down the road exactly what our revenue profile right. is, and then they could go and try and win our clients.
0: Really interesting. That's
1: that's the there's there's, there's a certain amount of kind of huh. trepidation and fear in the US huh. uh, as opposed to the UK. Yeah, you
0: could you could see why. Paul, final question before we get into our favourite questions towards the back end of the interview. Um, in a growing economy, a client's marketing budget will often be increased to kind of stimulate demand but in a declining economy or a recession marketing budgets are often uh shrunk they often tend to shrink um to keep operating budgets sort of to a minimal cost and when marketing budgets are reduced so are agency expectations um how can agencies protect themselves in those leaner times when marketing budgets are or have been reduced from a number of clients that they're working with
1: yeah, it's a tough one. I think, you know, for, for me, again, it's about being brave uh, and thinking of new ways uh, and new ways of doing things. So there's a lot of our clients now that we're talking to about productizing services. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of responding to a brief with, a, yeah, this is what we're going to do. It's a scope of work. Here's the team sheet and how long everyone's going to be spending mm-hmm. on it. It's being slightly more proactive and saying, uh, we have a product here, and this is, this is the process of the product, and these are the deliverables and the output, and that's what you're going to get for your money. Sure. So I think if I, was, if I was working in an agency now going into potentially a, a, a global recession, I'd be thinking about what can we do that's going to make clients feel more comfortable in spending money. So the more that you can add in KPIs, the more that you can sure. add in measurement so that they can see they're getting a return on their right. work. And if you can productize that into a package, then I think that will stand you in in really good stead.
0: Hmm. Good, good answer. Let's let's get into our final questions. These are the questions, again, that we ask everybody. So I'm, I'm keen to ask you some of them as well. Um, <laughs> tell us about a time you
1: failed and what you learned from the experience. Oh, there's, there's quite a few. Again, I think, you know, there, with, with any of this, uh, it's that entrepreneurial spirit mm. of don't be afraid to fail. Mm. Um, you know, it's a scary thing having to admit you're wrong sometimes or you've made the wrong decision. <laughs> but yep. we're all going to do it multiple times within our lives. I think the, the most important thing is to uh, move on with it. Forget about it. You can't change the past. You can't dwell on it. Mm. Uh, so really, you know, many failures in my life of decisions that I've made. The, the the where I've got to the learning I've got is don't talk to yourself about it. These things happen, and just move on to the next one. But mm. don't be afraid of failing again.
0: Really, really good. And and you avoided actually giving me a specific example. Specific, so that was, know, that was that good. was well sweared, very political. <laughs> uh, tell tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced your the way that you think about. Uh, finance the way that you think about MA, the way you think about sort of the media landscape
1: yeah there's there's been quite quite a few I've been very lucky to work with uh, some inspirational people uh, I think probably fairly early on from a from a finance perspective uh, I had the pleasure of working with Jane Ryan at Edelman who is hmm. their uh, UK and European CFO right uh, and she gave me some some very sage words of advice one that still sticks in my head in particular is you know if if you've got nothing to say don't feel like you have to say it (laughs) uh and I think that's you know from sitting in lots of meetings now people just talking because they feel like they need to talk I have a voice Uh, yeah exactly (laughs) even though my point is nonsense I'm gonna go and say it anyway Sure, Sure, um and then other people throughout my career so um uh certainly when I was at Naked there was many inspirational people there but people mm. like john wilkins who's now at uh kamarama mm. um um and uh, and will he's his founding partner um uh, you know very inspirational people and um very good at business and thinking mm. about business mm.
0: tell us about some of your favorite books this could be fiction non-fiction business related non-business related whatever
1: yeah, so, well, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I tend to, uh, to watch my iPad mostly, but I do okay. have two young daughters. Right. So um, my eldest is in uh, Zeus class at the moment. So we've been reading lots of uh, Dr. Zeus books, Green Eggs and Ham Great and the books. like. Great books. Which are quite, quite interesting. Yeah. Um, there's also um, having two girls who are both uh, both very much girls, you know, a range of fairy and princess books <laughs> that, uh, that I get my kicks from at the moment as well.
0: <laughs> really interesting. Uh, so you mentioned that you're on your iPad a lot, uh, Amazon prime or Netflix.
1: I, I like both actually. Okay. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, I, what's good that you're watching at the moment. I'm just getting to the end of uh, succession. Great show. which is which is a fantastic show really really enjoyed that i also like a bit of violence so things like the walking dead and uh yeah zombie apocalypse and stuff like that yeah
0: yeah yeah absolutely fantastic in in the last three to five years what behaviors habits or ideas have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes
1: very good question so i think probably probably the biggest thing for me is Um, kind of self-perception and Mm -hmm. self-awareness and by that I kind of mean um, sometimes people can can worry too much about what other people think Um, and it's okay for people not to like you not everyone's going to be liked by everyone else Mm -hmm. Um, so I would just say that you know one of the biggest learnings I have is be yourself if someone doesn't like you or someone doesn't like what you said there's not really too much you can you can do about that don't you know be rude or offensive but it's you know you need to have that awareness of you can't change what people think of you so why spend the time worrying about it that's a good point i need to learn that lesson more more and more
0: (laughs) uh really good
1: point um
0: what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit
1: uh mentally fit uh the kind of the children fit that (laughs) need i didn't realize i was quite so bad at at spelling and uh, <laughs> certainly times table after having a having a calculator in my hand for so many years mental arithmetic right. at, at junior school level is pretty challenging sure, for me right now sure. um, and physically it's you know the the usual I, I used to play golf uh, not so much now but I do try and get to the gym two or three times a week. Great.
0: Fantastic. And my final question, in fact, one more question before my final question, if a millennial or a young person asks you for advice to get into the corporate finance world or MA, what advice do you give them?
1: Um, That's a good question. So I think, you know, for, for millennials, I think the landscape now of, uh, how you work, where you work, when you work, is completely different to when I started my career. Um, And I think what people need to think about now is being very clear uh, and communicating upwards. I think you need to, uh, in whatever industry it is, uh, manage upwards um, and be able to not be demanding, but also to take on... More from people, so um, offer yourself and by manage to take upwards. On more work.
0: By manage upwards, you mean being able to speak so, to.
1: So it's communication with with your boss, sure, or the people above you. I think you know we work, we all work in quite open environments now. I think there's less hierarchy than there was 10 20 years ago, mm-hmm. um, and if you can. If you can get the message out there to your boss that you are committed, willing to work, want to take on more, want to learn, then I think you'll do well in any environment nowadays.
0: Quite quite fascinating. And my final question, Paul, what is it you know about the world of media and finance today that you wish you knew when you were 16 years old?
1: Wow. Um, well, I think uh, the mistake... I think everyone needs to... to um, when they're thinking about working somewhere to think about their own culture and values. Mm. Uh, I learned quite early on in my career, fortunately that the city probably wasn't the place for me, mm-hmm. uh, because of my culture values and the way that I enjoyed working, mm. um, and made a decision, which looking back on it, which was completely random to go and work in a packaging design business, uh, which turned out to kind of set my career off. So I think back then I would say to myself, you know, you need to be sure when you're looking to go and work somewhere that you're working with people that you like and that you respect.
0: Great answer. Great place to end as well. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Pleasure. Absolutely fine.
0: We have been speaking with Paul Allen. He is currently a partner at SI Partners. We're not going to ask you to subscribe or give a five-star rating or share this episode with a friend because our thinking is if the content is any good, you'll willingly do that anyway. We'll leave that decision up to you. Email me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. I'm Nathan Barber. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters.